hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Sucker Time. The number one comedy podcast about comedy. Podcasts. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast podcaster, Mark Hershaw. Yes, hello, I am Mark Hershon, and this is Epi 65 of Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast. I'm coming to you from Studio Studio F this time. That's my fiat, and it's garbage day here, here in my neighborhood. So uh, in addition to uh, the uh, non-Studio P sound we often have, you'll also be hearing the sound of garbage trucks occasionally. So welcome to Zuckatash. You know, the usual format for the show is to be festooned with wall-to-wall clips from comedy podcasts around the world via the internet. And of course, we also have some regular features, also some inane silliness that's sometimes provided by our local crew. Me, Joe Polino, our producer-engineer, Bill Haywatt, our booth announcer, and even Kenny Jurgis, our booth assistant. But this, this episode, we have a few clips, but we also have an interview with special guest Paul Mercurio. We've clipped the Paul Mercurio show before, and last time there was a short clip from an interview he did with Paul McCartney. And you're on a world stage, and the entire world is following you and in love with you. And to have the guts to go, you know what, I know I know you like, uh, you know, Hard Day's Night, but we're going Sergeant Pepper. Come with us or don't come with us. Where does that, obviously, brilliant musicians and songwriters, but fundamentally as a person in being Paul McCartney, where does that confidence come from? Well, you know, I say, I would say that the Beatles um, was a unit. And yeah. we were a unit that we'd worked together a lot. We mm-hmm. lived in and out of each other's pockets. I mean, once when it was really cold and the window blew out on the van, we, we actually, like, lay on top of each other in a beetle sandwich. <laughs> and, you know, by, by that point, at this point, you're getting, you're getting pretty intimate. You're, you're yeah. getting knowing each other. So, yeah. um, so I think we gave each other the confidence. And as each little new canvas was painted, mm-hmm. we go, oh, man, that's cool. Okay, now let's do something different, different, mm-hmm. different, different, different. So it was a natural evolution. And by the time we got fed up of touring because we couldn't really hear ourselves, it was all that was getting a bit boring, you know, by right. that point. Because we'd really, we'd worked uh, very hard. You know, we'd, we'd worked sort of, over 300 days out of a year, you know, we would work. Right. Uh, so, so just the toll of the sheer physical working um, led us to have this idea. We thought, well, let's just let's just make a record. Let's just can't stop touring, go into the studio. And we'll make a record, and we'll say, well, let the, let the record go on tour. Well, it turns out that that episode with his interview drops this week. So we had the opportunity to interview Paul, not Paul McCartney, but Paul Mercurio, about his experience. Uh, had a delightful conversation via Skype. He's in New York. I'm in San Francisco. But we talked about his interview with Sir Paul. We talked about his uh, his background in comedy and writing for The Daily Show and The Colbert Report and uh, generally had a great time. So that's coming up a little later in the show. Last show, Epi 64 with Monica Homburg, 
from Dazed and Convicted podcast. I want to thank her again for being my guest co-host in the last episode. We had a lot of fun. And that episode was the longest episode in Succotash history to date. It ran about two hours and four minutes long. Uh, It was pure Succotash goodness from end to end. This episode is also going to be long. I don't know that it's going to ring in at two hours, but uh, it is going to be a long episode, so strap in. In the meantime, I know that what you're thinking, did Dean and Phil over at the Chill Pack Hollywood Hour mention Succotash last week? Did they? We got not one not two, but three shout-outs during their episode 322, including this one that has some very interesting information regarding a possible future development for both our show and theirs. I'm so depressed, so I think we need to cheer things up a little bit. I'll play a little something under. While you tell me uh, some good news maybe about uh, Jackalope Radio. Oh, do I have good news about Jackalope Radio? I thought, uh, aren't we in the process? Of, we are uh, in the process of getting back on our new shows. Oh, so we'll be up to date on we'll be, Jackalope Radio. Yes. I'm waiting for Burt Bacharach to really nail it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, of course, uh, people can hear us all the time on Talk Superstation. I think we were in a special time slot one weekend and everything. Yeah. It's been fantastic. Here. So... There, I think that uh, lifted the mood a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely, because uh, no other horror movie had a song so inappropriate. That's the theme from the Blob. From the Blob, I love Steve it. The Blob. I would play some lyrics, but then I would think that we would uh, really Maybe get into soon. some royalty. Yeah, uh, so issues. We'll just uh, sing along. You know, uh, Mark Hershon. Yes. Who cares not a whit about royalty issues because <laughs> he just he cuts clips from left, right, shows left, right, and center. Yeah. But if you ask him not to after the fact, then he then he'll stop. Stop doing that. Okay, uh, yeah. and, and I salute him. <laughs> it's always easier to ask forgiveness than it is to ask permission. Remember that, Remember, th- And when you say kids, you mean aspiring filmmakers. I do. Uh, <laughs> but I heard from Mark Hershon because la- on last week's show, I talked about how we knew all these people who had great ideas for shows. Podcasts. Uh, that we would love to hear. Maybe make a network. Maybe make a network. He wrote me. <clears throat> he apparently knows the guy. The guy that... Hershon can- knows every guy. Uh, I know. And he knows the guy behind the guy. But uh, he he said we got to talk. We got to talk. We need to. You know, this is a doable idea. So um, not only will I talk to Mark Hirschon this week, but I may very well be doing it from his own backyard because, as you know, I'll be up in uh, the Bay Area this up week. In the Bay Area for a whirlwind, whirlwind, a whirlwind tour. So trip. wait a sec. Are you saying that this network thing is more than a pipe dream now? That there's a guy. That there's at least fac- going to be a conversation and a, fa- a facilitator. Well, there's going to be a conversation. <laughs> so stay tuned. So we're going to be network moguls. Podcast network. You're jumping a little oh. bit ahead. Because I'm already picking out a suit that I'm going to wear for, and the shoes that will be on the desk. You'll want to catch this week's episode of Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. That would be 323. It was recorded in front of a live audience in San Diego at ParanoiaCon 2013. And I'm still listening to it. I'm only about halfway through. So far, no mention of Succotash. Interesting. However, in this episode of Succotash, we've also got episode four of Jason McNamara's Boganwood Pod miniseries, along with our Bursto Durst with political comedian Will Durst, our Tweet Sack, and a very special treat for those of you who listen all the way past the very end of the show, where we normally play someone giving their recipe for Succotash, we have a visit from none other than Chef Eddie Vedder. 
That's right. Chef Eddie is going to give his recipe, uh, or I don't know if it's his recipe, it's a recipe for succotash prepared the Eddie Vetter way. And that's courtesy of Travis Clark and Brandy Clark from Tiny Odd Conversations. So uh, you're, you're going to want to stick around to listen to that. But that is much later, by the way, much, much later. For now, of course, there is the 10 most active shows in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast League. There was mostly sluggish movement this week on the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast list. I say mostly because there were a few gigantic climbs up the ladder and a few jumpy jumps. Those are smaller jumps as well. That's a technical term, by the way, jumpy jump. Uh, It means, well, look it up. What am I, your podcast teacher? At 55, the morning stream is up 30 places. At 62, the Onion Radio News is down 17 63 is the Artie Lang Show, down 15. But at 65, the Writer's Block Podcast is up 355 places. Uh, That's right. And we're going to have a clip from that. And maybe we'll be able to figure out why it jumps so much. At 68, right behind it, Tits and Giggles, a new podcast, only two episodes in. They're up 632. 632 places. At 71, there's the Joey Medina Show, which jumped 229 places. Uh, At 82, a little bit more normal, Answer Me This is up 36. At 87, Dining with Doug and Karen, which we featured last week, has dropped uh, 24 places. At 90, Keith and the Girl down 24 places as well. And at 98, just above the bottom of the heap there, is uh, Hashtag After Black Podcast up 68. And that is your The 10 Most Active Shows in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast List. Hello, this is Serious Old Cunt from the fucking Strange Time Show fucking podcast, you fucking thing. And you're listening to Succotash, the fucking comedy podcast, podcast about fucking comedy. What the fucking hell? I must have some fucking nice fucking recipes, I suppose, for Succotash. I love a fucking child like that. That'd be fucking... Sorry? I don't have any fucking recipes. What the fuck? Why would you have a fucking show named after a fucking piece of food and you don't have any fucking recipes and that's fucking shite? Let me tell you, it's fucking rubbish. Anyways, I was talking about. Oh, yes, you're listening to a fucking comedy podcast, podcast about podcasting. Fucking hell, can I fit any more fucking words in that fucking sentence? Jesus fucking Christ. So I'll tell you what, with the roar of the garbage trucks behind me, I have the Paul Mercuro interview queued up and ready to go. But if we don't do at least a few clips, the show somehow doesn't feel right. So I'm going to play clips from a couple of those podcasts that really roared up the Stitcher chart this week, starting with one that jumped up 632 places to hit number 68 on the Stitcher Top 100 comedy podcasts. And only its second week, it's called Tits and Giggles, and it's the podcast for women in comedy and their supportive male friends, according to their website. Actress, writer, and comedian Sue Smith talks to Orthodox Jewish transgender comedian Dana Friedman. In this clip, Dana's talking about the pressure in front of a Jewish audience, whether to do Jewish material or not. Sometimes she just doesn't. The other night I did a Jew show, and there were like eight comics before me and they were all doing their hacky Jew material (laughs) and I didn't want to be like that. Had I done my hacky Jew material, not that it's you know, hack, they weren't all hacky but they were doing the stuff they knew would work with the audience, the classic Jew stuff and I have a lot of that and I just Like what? What do you mean? Well I know what you mean but maybe the viewers at home Okay, fine. So um 
So I have a joke. Well, I have a lot of jokes. Um, but like, like um, my typical opening joke is, "Hi, I'm Dana, and I'm an Orthodox Jewish transsexual." Anyone else? You know, and that usually kind of there's a tense moment, and then I ask anyone else. It's obvious I'm the only one in the room. Um, and I said, that's all right, and comedy being different is good. In Orthodox Judaism, not so much. I don't care. I was always a wise-ass, even in my bar mitzvah speech. I said, today I am a man. Tomorrow, not so much. <laughs> and, you know, the today I am a man is like the classic bar mitzvah line that a 13-year-old boy is supposed to say. And I have a lot of material like that about the Orthodox Jewish experience and being trained. So you can make it somewhat relatable to a Jewish audience. And I said, you know what, I'm, just, I'm not going to be the next Jewy comic in line. And I did, I did all the tranny material and prostitution material and sugar daddy. And it, you know, I died. Mm -hmm. uh, and I deserve to die up there. I could have killed with the Jewish audience. I know how to do it, and and I just didn't. I don't know why, and I didn't change midstream. I just did it was a five minute set, and I did very poorly. And the audience was fine. I could have wrung more laughs out of that audience. I figure I got about a sixty five. They laughed at about sixty five percent of my stuff, but that's a failing. That's a barely passing grade, and that's not good enough. Uh, I always rate how I think I did too, but it's usually out of ten, like. Okay. One to ten, yeah. So I was a six and a half out of ten. Yeah. I have some of those shows, too. I think yeah. everybody does. And the thing is, though, in retrospect, I walked off stage, and I saw the next Jew comic doing the classic Jew material, and I said, that's what I should have done. Like, and, But like what? Talking about the bar mitzvah? Well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Um, how... How does someone who is orthodox, I mean, it's, to anyone orthodox, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an oxymoron, I'm a contradiction, there's no way they could think of to be orthodox and transsexual because everything in Judaism is about the binary. There's men and there's women mm -hmm. and one never crosses over to the other. They are separate, they have different roles. And so when you try and cross over, makes people's heads explode. And anything that makes people's heads explode has potential to be funny. Right. You can find Sue Smith's new podcast at titsgiggles.tumblr.com, iTunes, Stitcher, and also on SoundCloud. Writer's Block, and that's B-L-O-C, is a podcast that leaped up 355 places to end up at number 65 this week on Stitcher's Top 100 Comedy Podcasts. It's a podcast all about comedy writing. Hosted by J.R. Havlin, who is an eight-time Emmy Award-winning writer himself for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, his recent guest was Scott Jacobson, the co-producer of Bob's Burgers, the animated show on the Fox Network. In this clip, while J.R. eats, <laughs> uh, Scott talks about how the show was originally pitched to the network, and they get into some of the characters. It's like the lowest concept show there is. It really, like when people ask me what it's about, I just say it's the family that owns a burger place, and that's kind of it. Uh, and then, yeah, pretty much. That's all yeah, you need, it is really. kind of, yeah. That's the problem with like pitching pilots a lot of the time is everything you feel the need to make it high concept because you're not going to get someone to read a script. You're just going to get them to hear your idea. And the, right. most of the time the right. concept falls out anyway, and it just turns into a thing about well, good characters. Tell me about that. I mean, that, that, that's an interesting thing uh, Like you know, that, that a lot of people, you know, don't know. And that idea of like, 
you're pitching a show, you might think you've got this great script, but they're not even going to... And it might be, like, super funny and really show the characters and build the characters and really set something up that's great. Mm -hmm. But that's not your pitch. Your pitch is, what is the show about? And and that makes it a lot harder to say, well, well, it's really... It's a, it's a family that owns a burger joint and... yeah. Um, I mean, because like I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to think of a way to describe the show, and I, I don't really get much past that. No, that's it. But most of your favorite shows, it's it's family uh, life. I mean, it's, it's just, just family. Yeah, life. it's friends. It's yeah. friends together, or it's people at, at a job. You know, it's a, the most high concept shows. Even like How I Met Your Mother, I forgot even what the concept is. Right, exactly right, right. On that, and I think they kind of have too. And it's just a necessity that you know, my name is Earl. I think they kept it going the entire. Oh time yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, they kept it going. That's every episode was another thing for him to check up. Yeah, that was that is, was a great thing. Actually, yeah, I, loved I mean that, that was that concept worked. But I would, I mean, I'm sure after like the 50th episode, you get tired of thinking, what's yet another unlikely resolution that this guy made yeah it must be hard to come up with them but i think they did a great job in that show of mm -hmm. um you know establishing so much other stuff that was going on that the list was almost always a b story mm -hmm. you know what i mean it was kind of the a story but it was mostly like a, a b story within the a story yeah kind of thing and you know in essence if you think about bob's burgers on a deeper level on a level that people rarely ever think about something like that it's a family show it's about the relationships between the family and you know, it's got to, um, and, and they they always have what their problems outside of that with like the inspector guy and stuff like that. And it was a funny episode at the nude beach thing that was. Great. Oh, thank you. I mean, they're all good. They really are. Um, yeah, well, it's uh, and I think the other thing that we do slightly differently that's certainly not revolutionary. Other shows have done it before, but it's a little out of fashion now. Is have characters that like each other. Um, the I think think there was one other, there was another thing in there about like I guess like. Just as an example of the way things change for whatever reason, um, I read that Jean was a girl and Tina was a boy originally. I don't know about Jean being a girl, but Tina was a boy named Daniel. Does that explain? Was was the same guy doing the voice yeah, already? Yeah, it was Dan Mintz. It All was right. Dan, it was, and then I think... Uh, and so they made it work, but left, note. kept the voice over. Yeah, they just kept Dan's voice. Because yeah. it suits the character so well. Made him it? into Tina, which yeah. is was a brilliant move because... Daniel wasn't nearly as charming as Tina was. I don't know. I don't know how. If you've seen the early like concept art for no, Bob's Burgers, no. he was just like kind of a quiet, nerdy guy in glasses. He looked like a comedy writer, basically. Right. And it's I don't know. There's something that's just like ten times deeper and more charming about making it this awkward girl with a boy's voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just because it's something you see less. less I, lo I love that you know because of the animation because they're not aging. She is she is stuck in the very worst yeah, girl year you can be stuck in. That's, that's a good point, yeah. yeah like it's the worst part of her life ever. You can get more deep, insightful interviews with actual working writers in TV, film, and probably, I'm going to guess, the internet at writersblockpodcast.com. And again, that's block, B-L-O-C. So writersblockpodcast.com, iTunes, Stitcher, and the All Things Comedy Network. Uh, so I've got Paul Mercurio uh, waiting on deck. Actually, you know what? He's in the hole. Uh, there's a couple other things to go. Don't forget, we've got Chef Eddie Vetter at the very end of the show with his recipe for succotash. Uh, but one more clip before we get into the craziness of uh, the interview and everything else. 
congratulations to Adam Barker over at the Oddcast Podcast on hitting his Epi 100. Adam's over in England where he's got several shows under the Barker Podcast banner, including the It's Not Soccer Podcast and the Ask an American Podcast. For Epi 100, he had fellow podcasters from all over the place chime in to an extensive radio play that he cobbled together uh, in which a visitor from the future comes back to warn him about how dangerous his podcast is going to become. It's very exciting. And uh, I would have been part of it. I actually was uh, sent some lines to do. And it was when I had my bout of laryngitis. And the one day I tried to record, it was raining so hard that you couldn't hear my voice over the rain hammering down on Studio F. So uh, I didn't make it in. I'm sorry. So uh, in exchange, I'm playing this clip. And uh, rather than play part of that storyline, because it's pretty extensive, uh, you really have to hear it yourself to enjoy the, uh, the entirety of the thing. Um, I am going to play uh, this very clever bit that's at the top of the show that springs off of his catchphrase, uh, Nobody is Listening. And it's based on the Baz Luhrmann song, Everybody's Free to Wear Sunscreen. Listeners and downloaders of the Oddcast podcast, start not listening. If I could offer you only one tip for the future, not listening would be it. The long-term benefits of not listening have been proved by scientists, whereas the rest of my advice has no basis more reliable than my own meandering experience. I will dispense this advice now. Enjoy the power and beauty of not listening. Oh, never mind. You will not understand the power and beauty of not listening until they are muted. But trust me, in 20 years, you'll look back at downloads of podcasts and recall in a way you can't grasp now how much you wished you hadn't listened and how stupid you really felt. You're not as clever as you imagined. Don't worry about the future. Or worry, but know that not listening is as effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubblegum. The real troubles in your life are apt to be the things and podcasts you have downloaded. The kind that annoy you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. Downloading the oddcast scares you. Don't be reckless with other people's podcasts and don't put up with people who are reckless with yours. Don't waste your time on the show. Sometimes you're wanking, sometimes you're not. The race is long, and in the end, it's only with yourself. Remember the good podcasts. Forget the shit ones. If you succeed in doing this, tell me how. Keep your old porn magazine. Throw away your crusty ones. Don't feel guilty if you don't listen to many Barker podcasts in your life. The most interesting people I know fucking hate Barker podcasts with a passion. Some of the most interesting 40-year-olds I know think he's a cunt. Get plenty of calcium. Be kind to your ears. You'll miss them when you're deaf. Maybe you'll listen. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have cancer, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll divorce at 40, maybe you'll punch Adam right in the face for being a dick. Whatever you do, don't congratulate yourself too much or berate yourself either. Your choices are half chance. 
so are everybody else. Enjoy your podcast choices. Listen every way you can. Don't be afraid of it. Or what other people think of it. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. Wank. Even if you have nowhere to do it but your own living room. Read the directions. Even if you don't follow them. Do not listen to Oddcast. It will only make you feel stupid. Adam, congratulations again on hitting episode 100. Find the full adventure of it all at BarkerPodcastsUKBlogspot.com or you know what? Just Google Oddcast Podcast Adam Barker. Even easier yet, hit it on iTunes or Stitcher. And they've also got some fun stuff up on YouTube as well. Before we get to my interview with Paul Mercurio, let's rip into the tweet sack and see what we've got this week. At Dean and Phil say, we love how at Dean Haglin was integrated into the opening of Epi 63. Man, I'll tell you, between me and the Chill Pack guys, we could not get our numbers right. That was Epi 64, boys, and went a little something like this. Suckatash! At Pat Dixon tweeted, Suckatash Show, thanks. Fans of true crime, dark topics, and light comedy enjoy NYC Crime Report. That's because we clipped Pat's show just last episode when Monica Homburg was our guest host, and that was very nice of him to thank us. Uh, Julie Threlkeld says, uh, Succotash Show, Monica Homburg, you guys rock. Bonus, I've now discovered two great new podcasts. Hashtag winning. Uh, thanks, Julie. That's very nice. Now, here's a partial list of some of the kind folks who took the time to tweet, retweet, favorite, follow, or just plain mention Succotash Show on Twitter this past week. Keating Thomas, Mary Lynn Rice Cup, Ty- Tyson Saner, Paranomi87, Cudla Army, The Bitter Sound, Tim Chismar, Risk Show, Paula Coates, Chris Wilding, Marita Almaraz, That Guy Travis, Paul Provenza, Ian Boothby, Jeffrey Welchman, Broadcast Basement, Chris Lanuti, Planet Beer One, Chrissy Mayer, Michael Showalter, Pull the Plug Podcast, Andy Bankin, Brett Trida, Megan Snyder, Rhonda Innes, Samantha Reichel, Vanetta Peller, Mazamal Hamid, Clutch 43, Davian Dent, Matt Oswald, Ed Wallach, and Steve O'Dockerson. And I would, of course, be remiss if I didn't, as I do almost every week, thank those kind, helpful people who really dug deep and went to our home site, Suckatash.com, and clicked on the donate button. And thank you so much. Here you are. That's all the Tweet Sack has going on in it for this week. If you'd like to email us, our address is M-A-R-C, Mark at SuccotashShow.com. You can also stick at Show in front of your tweets or at the end of your tweets, and we'll retweet your podcast interview when we see it, or we'll repeat your comments right here in the Tweet Sack. And don't forget our toll-full Suckatash hotline at 818-921-7212. 
Friends, for years, Henderson's Pants has been saying that we offer stylish lower body wear for every member of your family. Well, it's time to come clean. That hasn't been exactly truthful. Sure, Henderson's offered pants for mom and dad, brother and sister, even baby. But what about Fido and Fluffy, the dogs and cats of this great country? Aren't they members of the family too, you ask? Well, they are now. With Henderson's Pet Pants, your favorite furry friend doesn't have to be bare-assing around the house any longer. With more colors and fabrics than you can fetch a stick with, pets now have no excuse not to be putting on the dog or cat when it comes to stepping out in style. And Henderson's Pet Pants are not just limited to your pooch or pussy. Birds, fish, lizards, we are complete petophiles at Henderson's, and we have just the pant no matter what your companion companion's persuasion. Whether you want to see your Dalmatian in denim or your Persian in petal pushers, we've got it. That squawking cockatiel in corduroy, goldfish in gold lame, or Komodo dragon in khaki, ho-ho, we've got it. Hendersons can even lock your livestock up in stylish trousers. Imagine Porky's ham hocks in herringbone or your frisky llama in linen. We've got that, too. Originally designed for petting zoos, furry conventions, and the Bohemian Grove, Henderson's Pet Pants are now available truly for the first time for the entire family. That's Henderson's, makers of fine trousers and pantaloons since 1896, and now back to Suckatash. I had a fun interview with Paul Mercurio over Skype this week, the same week that his interview with Paul McCartney is dropping on the Paul Mercurio Show over on the Sideshow Network. It's also on iTunes and Stitcher, and I'm also reviewing the interview for This Week in Comedy Podcasts on Splitsider.com. And I want to get into the, the whole how the Paul, Paul McCartney uh, interview came about, but first let's, for, for my listeners, uh, let them know a little bit more about Paul Mercurio. Yeah. Uh, we know a little bit about you because I think I've played a couple of clips from your shows already. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we know, particularly from the uh, clip that I did with Leno, uh, mm. that you had, that mm. uh, you got into comedy, um, and really your first comedy job was writing for Jay. Is that correct? Yeah. I My my background is I grew up in Rhode Island, middle-class Italian kid, and I ended up going to Georgetown Law School, and uh, we bribed a lot of people, and I got in. <laughs> and, uh, and I ended up in New York on Wall Street doing merger deals, you know, M and A, mergers and acquisitions, and it's funny. You know, sometimes people will say, "Like, well, what what is mergers and acquisitions?" You hear that term, and it's like the best way I can describe it is like when you have a steak and a salad, and you mash that all together. That's like the salad. That's like the acquisition. And then <clears throat> a couple of days later, you take a really huge shit. That's the merger. <laughs> and I was the colon. It all went through me. I was the asshole. In, oh, uh, in, nice in image. Little, um, and uh, so. I had always loved staying up to watch comedians on Carson. Like, I don't know why. Just I, That was just something I loved to the point where I would, like, when I was a kid, go to school and, like, start doing their acts to okay. my friends. They thought I was really funny. I'm like, no, no, this is a comedian or whatever. And, and but that's never, the kind I mean, of integrity you have. You were even then giving the comic the credit. Right. I think I had to because I was doing Rodney going, my wife, take her, please. <laughs> it's like, hey, it wasn't uh, uh, an old uh, boy, you know, Jewish guy. And B, I wasn't married. Uh, although I had the same pot happen. <laughs> and um, 
So, you know, it was always sort of in the background, but it was never anything I thought I'd do. You know, my father put floors in for a living. My mother has a furniture store. They, they, they ran this furniture store together. So, you know, it's not what the world we, I came from. So, anyway, I'm on Wall Street, and I had some short film ideas when I was in law school. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll act on those. And I started making short films, and one of them got into the HBO Aspen Comedy Festival. And I got to, uh, I actually got to go to a short filmmaker's special luncheon at Peter Gruber's house in the Colorado Rockies. Wow. They drove us in a van to in a, this a desolate road. And I thought, okay, we're going to be raped and killed. This is what's happening here. <laughs> well, this it's is Peter Gruber's house after all. Right, exactly. <laughs> He's done with Barbra Streisand. Time to move on. So he, um, and then they, uh, it was a horse-drawn sleigh. It was, snow- it was like they literally ordered the snow. It was snowing. It was insane, right? And, um, and they basically took us to his house. And I had never been to a house like this. I mean, I'd seen money on Wall Street, but this was insane. It's just just sprawling house. This is when you know somebody has money. You walk into the house, and this is not a man-made thing I'm about to describe. This is natural. There's a brook running through the friggin' house. He built the house around the brook. That's when you have money, when you basically capture nature and put it in your environment. Right? <laughs> I understand so, that Bill Gates uh, has the same thing going on in Seattle. It's, it, it was insane, right? Yeah. So, um, and, uh, I, <laughs> so I go in, and I'm sitting at lunch with the Hudlin brothers, Spike wow. Lee, Albert Brooks, Oh, no. Like, all these, and yeah, and that was my first taste of this world, right? So I go back to Wall Street, I was becoming obsessed with that world, and I was, like, taking days off from work saying I was sick, but I was, like, I did a shoot at 52nd Street and 11th Ave and, 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 and Lexington Avenue, two blocks from where I worked, <laughs> saying I was sick, and I took up the whole block, I didn't have any permits, but I oh used my gosh. school. Anyway, so it was starting to kind of creep out of me. And yeah. then I started writing jokes, and I had a ton of jokes, and I, I kept this passworded file at work. And then one night, and when you're an associate doing merchant acquisition, you're just working day and night. It was like a lot of hostile deals and stuff. And so it was like 9 o'clock, and a bunch of people were going to see uh, <clears throat> to this grand opening that a client had, and they had Jay Leno as a private entertainment. And uh, – they said, you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, I like Jay Leno. And I'm like, I need a break. I'll go for like an hour. And I, and I never forget, I would stand up over the computer and I put my coat on and I'm like, ah, screw it. And I hit the print button and I printed out these jokes. <clears throat> and I thought, well, I don't know. I'll give him these jokes and maybe he'll use them. Because right? I'm not looking to make money. I got money. I got an apartment. And I, I kind of was, you know, doing, I was doing well. So he performs. I go up to him afterwards and I give him my jokes and he takes them and he goes, hey, come back here. He goes, well, he goes you might want to put your name and your phone number on here so I know how to reach you, right? <laughs> and, two day, and I thought he'd never call me. I thought he'd throw him away. And two days later, he called me at home and he said, I read the stuff and um, you can start sending me jokes and if I do them on the Tonight Show, I'll pay you 50 bucks a joke. And he goes, by the way, what do you do for a living? I go, I'm a comedian. He goes, I, I mean, I'm a lawyer. He goes, I knew it. I go, why? He goes, your setups are way too long. You're too wordy, like a lawyer. <laughs> I was making, like, make funny face here. I was doing all that stuff. He oh. goes, you don't need to tell me when to make a funny face. A week later, he did one of my jokes on The Tonight Show. Got some champagne with my girlfriend, now my wife, and another friend. And uh, it blew my head off my shoulders. I know what you mean. <clears throat> More you mean. so than, now, the reason I mentioned that I was a middle-class kid from Murat, well, like, okay, so you, because I wanted to give you context of, like, you would think, working on i was working on merger deals like they were on the cover of the wall street journal wow so you think that was gonna like pretty heady stuff for a blue collar kid from rhode island 
this $50 joke had more power over me. And I think in retrospect it was because it was something that I created out of thin air and somebody reacted to it. There's that creation thing that you don't get as an advisor, which is what I was on Wall Street. So now I've become obsessed with writing jokes and I'm writing, you know, I got two notebooks I'm taking to deals. One is for the deal and one is for, one is for uh, jokes. jokes. And I'm not taking any deal notes and I'm sending him jokes and he's doing the jokes and I'm sending him jokes. And then he says, try the jokes out. I go, how do you do that? He goes, go to open mic nights at bars. So I found some open mic nights and I started to live a secret double life where I was this Wall Street lawyer and then investment banker. I basically stayed on merger deals, but I just moved to the other side of the table by day and a comedian at night in the diviest bars. I know you've worked them. I know you know what I'm talking about. One of them was in the Bowery. I'll never forget the name. It was called Downtown Beirut 2. Yikes. I love the two because <laughs> apparently they were franchising these shitholes or Israeli <laughs> pipes took out one. I'm not sure. And it was literally like pimps worked out of there, a pusher worked out of there. There was a sign on the men's room door that said, the toilet suit is only to be used to go to the bathroom, not to cut coke. Thank you, the management. <laughs> and I liked that it said, thank you, the management. It was like a very dysfunctional cheers. Like when, the- <laughs> people on the street, when people on the streets of New York borrow money from you to go drinking, you think, well, I wonder where they go to drink with that. This is where they would go oh, to drink, right. right? So what year and it was, was this like, about? This was uh, mid-90s, uh, mid somewhere okay. around there. Yeah. And... And my routine was we had a dinner break around 7. Everybody else would go to dinner. I would get a town car. They would take me downtown. I'd undress in the car because I didn't want to look too corporate, put on some kind of more grungy clothes, have the car drop me off a block from the club because I couldn't let anybody know I was a Wall Street guy. They wouldn't take me seriously, and they probably would have rolled me in that club. I couldn't let anybody on Wall Street know that I was a comedian. They would have kicked me off all the deals. So I was hiding this from everybody, including my girlfriend, because I was embarrassed. And I was starting to have a nervous breakdown because I'm trying to keep all this together and work 100 hours a week and ever. So one night I go down to downtown Beirut 2 and uh, I pick a number and there's a folk singer on stage playing Blowing in the Wind badly. Like, yeah, like bad. There's a big tattooed guy with like a, like a bolt in his nose, like one of these like heavy metal guys like sitting next to me and grunting and pissed and kind of drunk. And all of a sudden, he gets up from the pool table and he runs. He gets up from the bar, runs over to the pool table. He gets into this argument with this guy. He runs out of the bar, and the guy, this other guy, grabs his neck and he starts screaming, "He cut me, man! That son of a bitch! He cut! He cut him across the neck with a box cutter. It was a deal gone bad, a drug oh deal." Oh my god! Yeah. All right. He cut me. His girlfriend such a. Oh, look at the He cut me, man. The answer, my friend. The guy just keeps playing. Like he's not getting off. Cops show up. Walkie talking, blowing in the wind. He just keeps playing, right? Because you wait like a month to get on these things. You're not, yeah. you're going to come, hella high water, you're going to go on. Well, I think the show's over. They keep the show going. So I say, nice to be here at downtown Beirut, too. I always wanted to follow a slashing, which, which I thought was a pretty good line. But the guy heard me say slashing, and he turns to me and he goes, hey, he goes, you talking to me? I don't need to take this crap from you. And he charges the stage with all these bloody napkins, like pressed up against his neck, and he throws them at me. And they land on my shirt. They stick to my white shirt, right? Now, a normal person at this point says, get off stage. This is God's message. I stay. I'm going to, like, fuck this guy. I'm finishing this damn I'm finishing, right? Hey, you're you're doing crowd work at this point. Right, exactly, right? (laughs) So I I, I basically... um, 
I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. No one's paying attention. He's screaming. The girlfriend's crying. The cops are, nobody's paying. And he turns back to me and he goes, uh, hey, he goes, what are you doing anyway? I go, I'm trying to tell jokes. He goes, oh, yeah? He goes, I like jokes. He turns back to everybody in the audience. He goes, hey, everybody, shut the hell up. This guy's trying to tell jokes. And the <laughs> shuts up. Every time he screamed, like an emphasis on words, like a little blood was. <laughs> so I get off stage. became your manager. <laughs> <laughs> and that is why I am where I am today. And that guy is John Stewart. Uh, get back in the cab. Dressed back up. I was supposed to be gone an hour. I was gone four hours. Deal blew up. They couldn't find me. 20 people in a conference room. Oh, my uh, God. Uh, I got this, you know, this, like, file folder pressed against my head, trying to hide this blessing. So lame. Like, just so, <laughs> like, when you screw up with your dad and you think you're going <laughs> to say all this shit to get you out of it. And it does it. Like, you know, they see right through it. So the guy's sc- senior partner screaming at me, where have you been? What have you been doing? Why do you have a blood stain on your shirt? <laughs> and before I could say anything, because I was caught, like I had no answer, somebody goes to me, uh, one of the other lawyers goes, what kind of shirt is that? I go, Brooks Brother. He goes, I know how to get blood out of Brooks Brother's shirt. Club soda and lemon. I'm like, what? Another guy goes, no, Armani. That's the shirt you want. Another guy goes, no, no, no. no, no. They started competing about what was the best shirt to get blood stains out of, right? Nice. And I slowly walked out of the room. And... um and that it was that was how it all started for me, and I lived that life for a couple of years until the point where I was like, I gotta should I get off the pod here? And then I I quit and unraveled my life, sold my apartment in New York City, sold my suit, sold everything I owned, kept my car, and I moved to a rooming house in uh, just outside the city, and it was a halfway house. It was like you know those old film noir movies where like Philip Marlowe goes to find the bad guy at the rooming house. It's got like a bare light bulb in the hallway. It's like it's crickety, rickety. That's that's what this was. I shared a kitchen and a bathroom with all these dysfunctional people. I had a, I had a ten by twelve room with a hot pot on the floor, wow. and you shared a kitchen and a bathroom. And I went back to living like a student. And in this house was a. Uh, uh, Two ex-cons, two recovering addicts, and a 300-pound phone sex operator who sold Herbalife diet products door to door. Oh my god! She would literally, she would do calls during the during at night, and during the day she would knock on people's doors. No, 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 no. Hey, and she had a big button that said, "I'm an herbal lifer. How about you?" Meanwhile, like you know, discarded bags of Kentucky Fried Chicken in her uh, <laughs> in her car, and she would invite me upstairs to listen to her phone calls i'm like there's no fucking way you'll like sit on me and i won't be able to get away and then you'll have your way and i knew what she looked like and i would hear her and i'd have to go outside and walk around the neighborhood oh for an hour God. because it was so gross and um and so that's how it started and then i about six months in i got really really dejected that i made the you know what it's like when you start out sure. at shit gigs getting stiffed by coked up club owners and driving two hours for 20 bucks and nobody's paying attention. It's a bunch of drunks. And I'm like, what did I do? I threw away Wall Street. What did I do? And I went back to New York, got another job on Wall Street, recreated my life, swore off comedy, got a new apartment, moved my girlfriend back in, bought a new TV, bought new suits, swore off comedy. Two months later, back in the clubs doing comedy like an alcoholic looking for a drink. And that's when I realized that it kind of, it's cliche, but it picked me. I didn't pick it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So uh, that was how many years ago? Oh, uh, that was like, I don't know, over a dozen years ago, something like that. Yeah. So when was the last time you said to yourself, uh, I wish I hadn't done this? 
Or was that the last time? Uh, 22 minutes ago? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been a while, but I was saying it a lot for a while. You know, but uh, even like after, you know, even after you get, there are some major benchmarks in this business. There's still no security, right? Like I got on the Daily Show and I thought, okay, well, I'll be happy with that. And then you get Emmy Awards and get that. And then you're like, oh, okay. And if I could just get that one TV spot and you get that. If I could just get the bigger TV spot and you get that. And if I could just get a special and you get that. And then you're like, if I could just be on TV on a regular basis, which I am going on all these political talk shows and as a talking head and you get that. And then. I could just have my own TV show now, and I get that, and then I, then that's next. And then if I could just dominate the world and impregnate <laughs> women at will and not have any ramifications to my actions, then you can, if I have a second penis, uh, you know, it's like, you know, I think it's a double-edged sword for somebody like myself because your ambition can be your downfall, right? Because you can never be satisfied. And there, that I have that problem. My wife has to keep reminding me of that. So there are, I'm, I'm a, I'm say, I've said it a lot less uh, for quite a while now. Uh, but there, every once in a while, it, it does creep in where you, you know, you kind of want something big and it doesn't happen, or you just somebody does business away in this business. It's just confounding, and you're like, you just, you just, you just, because that was the other thing. Is you come from Wall Street with all that money that we had to get deals done, and you just like, bang, 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 and everybody was on their game. And this, you know, have to, yeah, call you back. They don't call you back. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that was the picture you meant. Why would you use an old picture? <laughs> My website, one section doesn't work. Why isn't it working? We talked about this. Oh, I forgot. It's like, that's where I go. Like, why? What am I? That that part of it a little bit. Yeah, but yeah. So the what, doubts were very deep. Like, I was really freaked out. Like, when I, it was not a clean break. I didn't, like, go, okay, I'm going to look, go and never look back. And that's why I talk about this. And actually, Louis Black, who's a dear friend, was the one that said, you should really talk about this in your act and develop a show around it because it's, uh, and that's one of the scripted show. It's the scripted show that we have in development for me with Don Scardino, oh, uh, director okay. from Thirty Rock, and uh, John Rigi, uh, who's a great guy from Thirty Rock. He's got a deal at Warner Brothers, and he's interested in the project about the guy with the secret double life. Because oh, good. Yeah. what they like John about Rigi it is that years ago. you remember, yeah, Chicago yeah, yeah. comic, very funny. Yep. And um, and so this story, you know, as Don Scardino says, I see the poster of a guy you and a tie with a baby in your arms and uh one foot in one rowboat one foot in another rowboat and the rowboat's <laughs> kind of going like that and, because that's what i'm finding until talking about this on the road or whatever is like there's a lot of people that think they have it figured out and they don't like they think oh, okay my life's set and then they realize no i have a passion for something else you have to choose between security and passion and it was tough for me i i was talking to therapists i was talking to my co- old college counselor excuse me if i came up to you on the street you look normal i'd come up to you hey i know you don't know me but blah 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 you know so it was really um it was a tough decision to make and then even after i made it i wasn't sure and i went back and i vacillated and then once things started to pick up i felt like okay well this is the right thing and you know i like having my own thing and it's my own business and i'm my own brand and all that stuff you know yeah yeah um so I was reading your uh, your Huffington Post piece today, yeah, uh, about how oh. you how this Paul McCartney interview sort of came about. Yeah, yeah, uh, very surreal. So why don't you uh, kind of yeah. go into that a little bit, and then we'll uh, talk about this show. Yeah, well, I've been stalking Paul for years. Uh, <laughs> Who uh, hasn't? Format, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I was with 
uh, George Harrison for a while. Unfortunately, he passed away. I moved on to Paul. Uh, <laughs> I'm no, going after Ringo yet. No competition. Uh, you know, I mean, who hasn't stalked her? I mean, you know, you stalk Ringo, and it's like, really? This is Barbara Box, not as hot as she used to be. So why am I stalking you now? How hot was she in her day, huh? Yeah, right. Barbara Bach? Yep. Oh, That's absolutely. Yeah, if, if Ringo weren't Ringo, you wouldn't get no. He wouldn't get that. Not at all. get that in a million years. <laughs> but I had to settle for it. Look what I had to settle for. All right, whatever. Um, he, a, Co- a Colbert had him on, the show had him on for an hour. Do a, McCartney did a special one-hour show a few weeks ago, and they asked me to come over and help out with a couple of things, so I went over. And I don't usually talk to people, on, guests who come to the show, you just, just don't want to bother people, and yeah. so, and that was going to be the case that day, and I'm walking through the halls to get to the studio, and standing in the hallway, all alone. Arms folded, like leaning against the wall, looking up at the ceiling like he's waiting for a bus is Paul McCartney. All alone. I mean, not a security guard, wow. not an assistant, not a, a puppy, not a bug, not a butterfly, nothing. All alone. To the point where I stopped and went, this can't be right. I can't believe <laughs> Because he should be surrounded by, you know, the, uh, the, uh, what are the guys who guard the castles in London with the big hats? Yeah, what the are they? Buckingham Palace guards. Oh, the Buckingham yeah. Palace guards. Somebody, somebody, <laughs> a, a three, a three-legged pit bull. Somebody should be with this guy. <laughs> so as I'm approaching him, my whole world slows down. It's like, oh my God, it's Paul McCartney, <laughs> right? And now I'm going. Should I say hi? Should I not say hi? Should I? I'm like, no, I don't want to bother him. But it's Paul McCartney. You'll never meet him again. So I'm like, screw it. I'm never going to meet the guy again. Plus. Where the way I look at it, Mark, is he's out in the hallway alone he can- like a gazelle on the Serengeti Plains. <laughs> he's game. He's, he's, he's fair game. Sorry, yeah. people. Right? He could be in his dressing room with the door closed, but he's not. Right. He was asking for it. That's right. So uh, <laughs> I go up. I put my hand out. I go, it's great to meet you. Honored to meet you. Would you uh, uh, thank you? So happy you're here to do the show. He goes, oh, thanks. What's your name? I tell him. He goes, oh, Paul, that's a good first name. Then we started making out. Right there. I had him like right there. Um, no, I said, um, and then he said, what do you do? I told him, he goes, ah, oh, comedy, that's great. I'm always envious. He said, you guys can like, something happens that day and that night, boom, you can talk about it and whatever. And I said, well, I'm envious of musicians. I can't understand how you can hear music. We started talking about music and the creative process and touring. And he's got to get, meanwhile, understand, the whole time I'm talking to him, on the outside, I'm like this, all cool. On the inside, I'm like, I'm talking to Paul McCartney. It's like 16-year-old girls that you see in the, you know, the, the, the 60s footage mm-hmm. when they were in right? And I'm this close to his face, by the way. I'm like this. I'm like this close. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, he looks amazing. And he does. He's 71. He looks 45. And it was like those baboons that are cleaning ticks and gnats up their mates. I was like, Ugh, right? So crazy. And and the whole time I'm talking to him, I'm waiting for someone to come over and just like shoot me in the leg for even looking at the guy. But no one's saying anything. Yeah. We talked for like ten minutes. Wow. So then I go, you know what? I don't. Even, I said to myself, I don't mean the guy that overstays is welcome. I'm gonna go. So I just said, hey, I gotta run. So just so you understand, Mark, how big I am, and make sure you Rick Overton understands this too. I told Paul McCartney I could not speak to him anymore. I was like, hey, I get it, Beatlemania, buddy. I got to go. I got shit to do. Hello. Oh, my God. You changed the world. Yes, yes. Peace and love. No, so I leave. I go to the bathroom. I close the door, and I start hyperventilating. I'm like, oh, my God. I talk to I call my wife. She goes, why are you breathing so heavy in the bathroom? Are you masturbating in the bathroom? I'm like, no, I talked to Bob McCarty. So I hang up the phone, and then me, uh, being as delusional I am, go, you know what? He should do my podcast. That's sure, why like, not? Yeah. Why not, right? 
And then I'm like, no, he'll never like that. Because I really did. I always wanted to talk. Because I see musicians get interviewed, and I get so frustrated that nobody talks to them about, like, even one song and how you make all of those things come together. Yeah. Right? That'd be a great interview. It's always about this touring and the chicks and the this and the that. So I get up the gumption to go, and I say to him, I go back downstairs, and I say, listen, this is going to be crazy, but I always want to talk to a musician about how you write music, and I think you qualify as a musician, and he laughed. <laughs> and I go, do you do my podcast? And he goes, yeah, sure, just like that. Wow. Now I'm that guy. Remember there was that girl you always wanted to ask out, you don't have the balls to, and you finally go, you know what, I'm going to ask her out. She's going to say no. I'll, then I'll never have to say I should have. Yes. And I'll be done, except she says yes, and you're frozen, and you don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm like, oh, up the, up the, okay, right? And he, and he saves me from myself. He goes, well, how will we do it? And I go, I'll come to London. Like, I'm blurting <laughs> shit out. Total, like, spaz. We'll do it in New York. He goes, we are in New York. He was so, like, cool. Like, oh. we are in it. And I'm like, ah! I go, I, I, and then this, I actually did this to him. I go, you could do it in your underwear on the toilet. I'm like, what am I saying? Like, <laughs> I go, look, we can do it over the phone, whatever's easier for you. He goes, all right. I go, look, I'll talk to your assistant and get your assistant's information, and we'll figure it out. Yeah. And he goes, he leans in real close to me like this, and he goes, no, 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 you and I will do it. I'm like, what? He goes, you and I will coordinate it. They'll just muck it up. Let's exchange numbers. I'm like, what the fuck? What? That's fantastic. Oh, so now I'm writing my phone number on a piece of paper and handing it to Paul McCartney. My hand's like trembling, right? <laughs> So I think he's just super nice, whatever. And then uh, one thing leads to another. And uh, he does the show. And it's about an hour later. And my phone rings. And I don't recognize the number. And I let it ring the voicemail. <laughs> and I pick it up. And it's Paul McCartney saying, hey, it's Paul McCartney. I'm ready to do the podcast now. Wow. And I have a voice message on my phone from Paul McCartney. Which you haven't erased yet. I Which I have not erased. It's on my voice. It, it's totally on my... And, and I actually recorded it onto my Zoom and I loaded it to my computer. And four versions and I emailed it to me and my wife. It's in my anus. I have it like I have it everywhere, right? And uh, I call him back and he picks up the phone. I'm like, why are you picking up your own phone? You're Paul McCartney. He goes, it's my phone. I pick it up. He goes, I can do it, but we got to do it right now. And I'm like, okay. So now I hang up. I have nothing lined up. I'm walking from the Colbert to the Daily Show. Now I'm writing questions in a notebook <laughs> with my backpack on. Cars are almost hitting me. I call my guys at the Sideshow Network, and I go, Sean, who's a great guy, really on top of it. I go, Sean, you got to get me a line. He goes, well, we got somebody in the studio. I'm like, did you not hear me? I have Paul McCartney. I'm screaming like, oh, my God. Right, Charles, I'm trying to write, you know. And uh, so then he goes, all right, give us a few minutes. I have to call Paul back. Call him back again. Can you wait? Call him a third time. I'm sorry to keep you waiting. Can we do it another day? No, no, no. And they got me a line, and I got him on the phone, and he gets on. And by the way, they put me on hold for a second because he was. He goes, they have to hold. Paul's in the bathroom. I'm like, oh my god, Paul's in the bathroom. I just think he must be taking the most genius shit ever. He must, he must be like psychedelic and like whatever. He's, he's, it must be just forming the bowl. Like, I'm just completely lost my mind. Either that or it could just be a cover of one of his older shits. Yeah, exactly. It's like a rubber sole shit. Who cares? <laughs> and, uh, and then I get him on the phone. He goes, hello, Paul. And I was like, oh, my God. And then I got right to it. I asked him hard-hitting questions like, so, did you bang Yoko or what? Come on, one time <laughs> the road? Huh? Come on. No. 
So I kept it all about process. I wanted to talk to him about like the process of writing music, how what it's like as a solo artist, and then to have to be part of a band and and submerge your own solo persona for the good of the band persona. And talked about the Beatles and how where they got the guts and the confidence to keep changing their sound dramatically from album to album and not worry about losing their uh, their their fan base. Then he talked about uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which. At that point, I had an out-of-body experience. I'm like, oh, my God, just talking to me about Sergeant Pepper's. How did this happen, right? And I know if I did, if I'd stayed on Wall Street, this would not have happened. I know that. So yeah. that was one of those moments where all of those other moments you asked me, like, do you ever have those moments where you go, I wish I didn't stay? That's the moment where you go, I wish I didn't stay on Wall Street because I had those moments, like the Emmy Award in my house and uh, the, some of the people I met and some of the performances I've got to have. I've, like, it all balances out, yeah. you know. So we're going to play a couple of clips. We played one yeah. before the interview. We got another one at the end. Um, yeah. But when does the show drop? When can people hear it in its entirety? Uh, uh, it is it is uh, up and running as we speak. Okay. It's on uh, the Paul Mercurio show, which people can see here on the Sideshow Network, and on podcastone.com, also on iTunes. And uh, you've been great about getting the word out about other stuff I've been doing, you know. Jay Leno, Bob Costas, Louis Black. I got Stephen Colbert coming up. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be interviewing him next week and some other fun ones that are coming down the pike too. That, uh, but Paul was great. He just was so, he was so like just like right there and like just so humble and really cool and like uh, you know. And I went to see him at Fenway Park. Oh, nice. Uh, like a week later, and I'm yelling, hey, Paul, guy didn't even look at me. Like, really? That's how what? this is going to go? Oh, man. What? The people, they get so full of themselves. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I played the uh, the one little clip you sent uh, that was dealing with the Sergeant Pepper question. Yeah, right. And uh, I uh, played the clip I had with an interview with Paul McCartney. I don't know if you had a chance to hear it, but uh, on the very third edition of Succotash, uh, my guest was Dana Carvey. <laughs> who was in the studio, and uh, Paul McCartney called in while we were doing the show, which was actually Dana calling in as Paul McCartney. Oh, God, oh, that's hilarious. That's pretty funny. I should send you the uh, the clip, actually. It's a pretty funny one. Yeah, I want to hear it. Um, yeah. He goes into a riff where he says, uh, everyone always asks, what, uh, what else do you have to do, and you know, what's coming out? He says, oh, what are you talking about? I've done 100 of the best songs in the world. <laughs> Exactly. Can I rest? Do I have to have something new? Exactly. I mean, hang on. I want you to hear something real quick. Yeah. Um, this, like, oh, geez. Um, hang on. This, this is, um, like, you, you, you think about, like, Paul McCartney, right? Yeah. And um, this is, this is, uh, this is eight days a week, Junior's Farm, Let Me Roll It, Paperback Writer, my Valentine, Lady Madonna, yeah. uh, Eleanor Rigby, Obadio Blada, Band on the Run, Back in the USSR, Let It Be, Hey Jude, Day Tripper, like, Get Back. Like, you look at this and you go, Oh, it's insane. It's like, you know, what, what, look, the Stones are great, U2's great, but there's like a band of sound that those bands generate, right? Like, you're always going to hear Edge's guitar riff and everything. It's going to never go like whatever. This. And it really hit home more live than it does in listening to the albums. You go from yesterday to Helter Skelter and everything in between, yeah. you know, and, and, 
the, that was the thing that stood out. Um, the execution is brilliant, and they're all brilliant at that level, right? But this was just the variation on the sound, the the artistry of that, and the way he structured his 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 concert too. Amazing, just amazing. And um, and he, you know, he's just been this like amazing artist that never, you know, that never seems to kind of waver from what he wants to do. Yeah, my show's uh, musical director is uh, Dana's brother Scott who does my, did my theme and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he sent a CD one time. He had taken all the Paul McCartney songs and all the John Lennon songs. And he did a basically a duel where he played 30 seconds of each artist's song. And it's an over an hour long going back and forth between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. Song oh. after song after song. Oh my God! That either one of them them wrote separately yes. or together. Yeah, yeah. It just like you couldn't go to the bathroom at the concert because you're like I don't. Yeah. And I finally had to go, and like <laughs> Eleanor Rigby's playing, and I'm forcing the piss through me. Like I think I damaged myself for life. I'm like I'm missing Eleanor Rigby. Like, the guy next to me. It's like I gotta get. Um, and yeah, so you know the podcast has been great because it's actually been a I. I really resisted doing it for a long time because there's so many comedians with podcasts and I didn't want to be like just hanging out with other comedians. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but like this, that's been done a lot and other people do it really well. But I really like long form interview. Like there's Charlie Rose, there's Tavis Smiley and that's it, you know? And I grew up watching David Suskind, David Suskind show out of New York with my mother. I remember seeing him interview an actual hitman for the mob who had to put a hood on and sat there, this big heavy set guy for two hours. Yeah. And I remember being captivated by it. I don't know why my mother was watching me let <laughs> interviews at 11 o'clock at night with Hitman. I, I think that might be the reason I'm a comedian. And so I just decided to talk to people in my life that I've worked with that are friends of mine uh, or I'm fans of. Uh, like Bob Costas has been in my HBO sports comedy series. I've done a lot of stuff with sports and comedy. Uh, Leno, obviously, in my history. And uh, the Mythbusters, uh, just friends and fans of each other. That interview is really cool, two-part. You know, they talk about atheism and science and just all this stuff. So it's been like a nice creative outlet where I can kind of just That's delve cool. into what people do. I'm not really trying to be uh, like – I just want people to kind of know what these people do and what they're about, you know. So and, that, and that's what that's yeah yeah and it doesn't all have to be big names. I've talked to a lot of radio personalities that I've been on radio with who are really interesting guys, you know, and they like have and they all everybody has a process. Like even Stone Cold Steve Austin, the wrestler, I ended up talking to him for two as a two part interview because they it was eerily parallel to being a comedian. He would mm-hmm. go from town to town, developing his persona as a wrestler to the point where he finally hit on Stone Cold. He was like a guy with long blonde hair. He was a pretty boy for a while, and he was something else. And it was exactly what comedians do: go from town to town, little venues, developing your persona till you hit on something that works, and then you become big. So. And, you know, no dummy, no dummy. There's an interesting parallel, which is why I interview comedians on my show, because, well, I know a lot of you guys, yeah, uh, having been in the business for as long as I have, but my show really appeals to podcasters, because I play clips of podcasts, and there's a lot of people that are just doing podcasting. They don't have any comedy background or anything like that. Right. But there are a lot of parallels about how people got started in comedy, how they're getting started in podcasting now. Oh, really? Yeah, because they'll try something, they'll do six episodes, and they'll go away for a year. Yeah. They'll think about it. Or they'll go away for six months, and they come back with a new format. Yeah, and it bites them, you know? I mean, it's a really freeing format, too, and you 
the technology, I think also, it's funny because technology and art are really go hand in hand because the ease of the technology allows the art to really to explore. You know, I said to my guys when they finally got me to do it, I'm like, I, this can't be complicated for me. I'm too busy to be fussing around with a thing and then another thing and a plug-in and whatever and 14 downloads. I want to just like turn a recorder on or have somebody hook up a line, talk, hang up, and then not think about it. And they go, yeah, we'll take care of that. And that's, and that's freeing for me. And I don't personally care if I'm in, it's nice to be in studio or in person with somebody, but some people only do it if they're in person, and I, I don't care because I don't want to limit myself. And the kind of guests that I want to get, which are significant names for the most part, you're not going to get them. No. You know, they're too busy. So it doesn't matter as long as the content is there. And, um, and you know, like you're getting people to reveal. Like Bob Costas revealed, to this day he carries around a exactly like, where did you get your interest in sports and sports programming? Well, I just loved watching the Yankees. I'm a huge Yankee fan. And, he has a 1958 Mickey Mantle original rookie baseball card in his wallet to this day that he carries with him, like next to a picture of his wife and his kids. Like, and that's going to tell you more about Bob Costas than like him giving your the- his theories on performance-enhancing drugs in baseball today. So he was all about – that was all about delving into his background and past. And that's the thing with McCartney. Like I just wanted him to talk about – like I never asked about the Beatles. Like I, it just naturally went there because I figured – Everybody immediately asked him about the Beatles, and I was more interested in his process as a creative genius, how he gets there, how he works with others. You know, uh, this uh, the clip you're going to play at the end, I think he talks about, I asked him about transitioning from the Beatles mm-hmm. to having to carry the load himself in wings, yeah. a whole different animal, and he talked about that, and, mm-hmm. and I think the best thing I did, by the way, was not ask him for an autograph or a picture when I talked to him in the hallway, because if yeah. I had did i think i would have become that guy and you don't want to be that guy and then he would not have been so generous after that you know with agreeing to do the podcast and um my asking him for a million dollars or or i'll steal his children i I thought that was a little forward but i'm like hey i was on a day where i figured i'd ask whatever i wanted to ask and you could say hey look i didn't ask you for an autograph (laughs) i heard he's not a big fan of giving autographs actually i heard that that's one thing to do because it probably gets inundated. So do you foresee yourself hosting uh, a talk show in kind of a more usual format? Yes. <laughs> yes. Fucking yes. I'm saying well, a huge emphatic I'm... head nodding. Yes. What I'm saying. Um, we already had a talk show in development and also I have an animated show uh, in development too that I created. Um, the talk show is sort of centered around me as the host. I like to sort of talk to the audience and improvise with audiences and I think that there's a show there where you can get the audience to talk and have interesting things to say. But then this podcast thing came to life and my managers and stuff and were like, well, this is showing a side to you that we kind of thought was there but now people are going to see in space that you can interview significant people in depth and, and you know, really do a nice job and that's going to be another piece of the puzzle that we can show people. So, yeah, this is very much... Uh, podcast thing is very much one of the key pillars to the talk show uh talk show that we want to do that's great because I, I love it i really like i think what people would see if they saw me i like i'm very genuinely like i could talk to a plumber like i literally could like i can like i could talk to a plumber like how you get pipes through a house that's old and it's interesting because yeah. i do it in the clubs like you could talk to anybody about anything they do and there's something interesting about it it's just fine it's just finding the right 
line of questions and and you know you interview a lot of people and you're great at it it's like you kind of you just have to have an interest there so yeah i could totally see having a talk show and then having a meltdown on a talk show like two years in after being all coked up just freaking out and then coming back and then getting another talk show like charlie sheen only on the talk show side that's right have your sidekick have to take over for you (laughs) right exactly (laughs) exactly uh, well, that's have great. You come on, you take over. Overton takes over for a while. <laughs> you guys make it even worse. Uh, uh, what did you guys do to the show, man? That's I don't fantastic. know. We thought you needed a couple of goats and a nun. Uh, we, we just <laughs> improvising. I don't know. But, well, listen, uh, Paul, thanks so much for the time. Uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to playing the clips for uh, my audience and directing them to see uh, or to hear you with your full podcast uh, over on Sideshow Network. Yeah, please. And I'll have the link up on our blog site as well. Awesome. And uh, I think I'm also going to cover uh, the McCartney inter- uh, interview for um, Split Cider this week for uh, oh. This Week in Comedy Podcast. So. Awesome. Thank I'll you. I'll do a write-up on that as well. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Going from the Beatles to Wings with their sort of uh, maybe self-imposed pressure, kind of like Wings is sort of, you know, you were, you were the, the main thrust behind that band as opposed to sharing that load what did you feel that um did you how did you deal with that if you felt that yeah i think so you know i think with the beatles it was a band of equals and that was a great thing but it sometimes uh created difficulties which wasn't a bad thing as i say because you'd work through the difficulties and you'd come out with something good the other end so you know, having your work questioned was not necessarily a bad thing. But by the time I was in Wings, I'd kind of put all the work in with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And so I felt now I could actually lead the band. Right. Um, so that was a different thing. You know, it meant I could call the shots a lot easier. Even though in the Beatles, whoever wrote the song could call the shots. It was more demo- it was more democratic with the Beatles, right? I, I know I would say yeah. that, that one person could vote down a song and it wouldn't make uh, explain that to people. I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, no, that's that's right. You know, it's um, it was different completely because now I was a leader of the band. Yeah, and so, but I had to learn that persona too, you know, and try and be kind of inclusive of the band yeah. members, mm-hmm. but at the same time try and think what our audience was going to want to hear. Mm-hmm. So we mixed and matched it, you know, and um, eventually, around about 76, when uh, the when we made the album Wings Over America, um, uh, by that point, you know, we, we kind of had it together. So, yeah. so uh, we made it work, you know. I would love to have Paul Mercurio back on the show again, so uh, we will see uh, maybe when he comes into town. We'll uh, talk to him live and in person. That'd be great. Uh, be sure to check out the full interview with Paul McCartney at SideshowNetwork.tv, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Hello, you lovely, lovely people. My name is Mr. Davian Bent from the Bitter Sound Podcast. Yes, that's right. The Bitter Sound, available on iTunes and Stitcher Smart Radio. And it gives me great pleasure to say, you groovy fuckers, you are listening to Suckatash. 
time for episode four of the Boganwood Pod miniseries. We're halfway through playing all eight episodes from the first season. Getting into this installment, I talked to Boganwood's creator, Jason McNamara, about how other podcasters are reacting to the show, and we also got a little bit more into some of the characters on Boganwood. I know there's only one podcaster that's really kind of anti-Boganwood. <laughs> but all the rest seem to enjoy it, but I haven't taken many of their personalities yet. But um, Kat Sorens over Rigid Fist said to me, and he was brutally honest, and he said, it's not his cup of tea. And I said, oh, okay, is there anything that I'm doing wrong? Is there something that you think that maybe the story's lacking? And he goes, you know the thing? It's, it's not what you're doing. It's that it's so realistic that I live next door to these idiots, and I hate them with a passion, and I don't want to read anything about them. I don't want to know anything about them. I hate them with a passion. I don't care who they are, and if they've got a bit of heart, I just hate them. <laughs> wow. I'd actually take that as a testimonial. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's how, that's how realistic it was. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Now, there's uh, there's some terminology you use, um, yes. words and whatnot, that obviously people that are not from Australia uh, yeah. may not quite get. Although in the context, I really didn't have a problem with it. Uh, I found myself within the first episode and a half really just sort of figuring out what most of these things probably were. Um, but for the people that are uh, going to be listening to the first episode, there's things like Dole Day, which dole I, day. I assume is the day the welfare checks arrive. Welfare, that's it. I was trying to think of the American um, terminology. Yeah, it's it's the Dole Day is uh, welfare. The, there was a conscious decision when I started writing it to not make it as – I wanted to make it as Australian as possible mm-hmm. um, because I think uh, I think it was you that once said that it's one of our charms is that we're very Australian. Yeah. So I thought, why don't I keep the terminology the same and that way if we get questions around it, it means people are listening. That's so, right. And, <laughs> and as I say – I think the context you paint around these things make it fairly obvious, or you can make a guess as to what the things are. Uh, or you can, or you can ask us what. I, I do want to ask if there's a specific recipe for goon juice. Goon juice. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the the actual the goon juice itself is a. Um, I think what do you guys call it? Cask wine. Oh, okay. uh, in the in the in, in the. In the in the box, and what you do is after you drink it, because it only costs about $5, you've got yourself a little pillow after you finish <laughs> drinking it. So what you do is you drink the wine, and then you can blow it up, and you can sleep on it. And that's one of the stories that's based on realism, obviously, where we've got drunk on goon juice and slept on the pillows that have <laughs> become in part of the box. <laughs> Some of the other characters that uh, we meet in the first season are uh, Jimbo, Who's the really the main antagonist? Yep. It seems. Yeah, he is. He's the bad guy. Poor old Jimbo. He's he's got a heart of gold, except when he's running away from his um, child support responsibilities and ripping <laughs> which, people off. Yes, which proves to be his Achilles' heel in this uh, first season. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No spoilers, but yes, yes, <laughs> there there is a point where it all comes to head. So, <laughs> and and then there's characters like uh, Diesel. Who's uh, just sort of an unfortunate lout? Who uh, he, he's sort yeah, of? A, I guess he's sort of a henchman of sorts. Yeah. He is, and poor old Diesel's actually based on a friend of mine that's a security guard, and he used to tell this joke um, called Diesel Fitter, and so <laughs> it was, and it was the, the worst joke ever. And he could never, not only could he never deliver it, but it was a really bad joke. Um, and so I thought, there's. 
there's all these stories around security guards that I'm going to put in there. Um, he's a lovable bloke, the bloke the, act, the, the character's actually based on. Um, Diesel's somewhere in between him and, you know, one of Jimbo's henchmen, as you said. Yeah. You know, easily manipulated <laughs> and a, bit, a little bit simple when it comes to taking on the Bogans. So. Welcome to Boganwood, Australia, Canberra's forgotten suburb. In today's adventure, we check back in on Sheila and Jimbo briefly and then get into the story of the mishap that happened with Dingo, Bricko and Jimbo at the supermarket only days before. Sheila sat in the car cursing at Jimbo and reaching across the wheel to hit and punch him, but Jimbo kept driving his car to the undisclosed location with a smile on his face and a strange look in his eyes. It was only a moment ago that Sheila remembered that the events the day before hadn't gone as planned. Yeah, Jimbo had given Dingo and Bricko the window washing business, but the actual occurrence hadn't happened as it was meant to, and Jimbo didn't look too happy about it. Now, before we continue with Sheila and her misadventures with the ever-pleasant and handsome Jimbo, we should take a step back and talk about the reason that Sheila is concerned that she is now locked in the car with him. Bricko, Dingo and Jimbo continue to discuss their plan as they walk toward the entrance to the supermarket, missing out on one key problem. Bricko stopped Jimbo and Dingo. Guys, we shouldn't go in together. They'll be able to put two and two together, you know, with their security cameras and stuff. Shit, Bricko, thank God for your thinking and stuff. I wouldn't have thought of that. you got one of those smart brains, Bricko, and we should probably be listening to those thoughts. Dingo stated as him and Jimbo stood back. Bricko entered the store looking around, or scoping the joint, or some other smart word for sussing it out, and walked around the store and gave a nod to Dingo to enter. Dingo and Jimbo entered the store together, making their way through the aisles so they could get close to Bricko to nut out the rest of the plan. Bricko walked down the oil aisle and grabbed a bottle and started his way over to Dingo and Jimbo. Now, I'm not going to lie here, people. Have you ever seen three bogans standing next to each other, talking about something while they're pretending not to know each other? Well, let me tell you, it doesn't look as inconspicuous as they would have liked to think. That and the fact that Bringo and Dingo had forgotten one thing, and this was going to change the events of today's antics. Although Bricko walked past security guard, he didn't think anything of it. Why would he? Today was all about making a so-called accident occur. But as Bricko entered the store, the security guard, Diesel, got a twinge of recognition. Fuck. Where do I know that bloke from? Diesel mumbled to himself. He sat there trying to work it out, but it was only moments later that Dingo walked in and Diesel remembered everything. Those fuckers. What the fuck are those cunts up to, he thought. Diesel decided to keep a safe distance to ensure the guys didn't recognise him as he watched Jimbo join them. There they were, three bogans standing together in an aisle with two bottles of oil. What the fuck was going on, he thought to himself. Those are the fuckers that roll me, he remembered as he peered at Dingo and Bricko. Diesel had only been working in the local pub for a couple of days now and was just getting used to the different clientele when he was caught over the loudspeaker to come quickly to the pokies lounge. It was there that he met Dingo and Bricko for the first time, sitting at a pokie machine as the feature was going off, arguing with a little old lady. The manager also walked up and gave Diesel an update on the incident from his perspective. It appears that the old woman had gone to the toilet and she left a couple of dollars in the machine and hit the reserve button so that no one could play it. The woman's version of the story continued. 
She returned from her toilet break and was greeted by Dingo and Bricko now sitting in her seat, playing her machine as the feature continued to rack up the dollars. Dingo and Bricko refused to leave, stating that they had taken over the machine after she had left and gone to the toilet. The woman went and got the manager to tell him of her misfortune at the hands of these couple of bogans, and the manager decided that the best course of advance was to call the new security guard, as Dingo and Bricko had been known for causing problems during previous incidents within the club. Now, as everything in Boganwood goes, there is always two sides to the story, but we don't have time for the truth right now, so we'll continue with a woman's version of events to get to Diesel's distaste of Dingo and Bricko. After the club manager asked Diesel to escort Dingo and Bricko off the local club premises, Sheila walked up and started in on both of them. She was a trusting woman, she was, and no one was going to accuse her man of robbing some little old lady. Fuck off, you dirty old cunt. I bet you did your pension check and wanted some free cash. My men aren't no fucking granny stealers, she stated in the heat of the moment. They won that money fair and square, so don't you fucking touch them. It was at that point that everyone around started to watch in as the incidents were unfolding. Diesel put his hand on Bricko, and Dingo saw red. He decided to control his anger, and stood up staring at Diesel. Get your hands off my mate, you bully school kid that couldn't make it as a fucking police officer. Now things were getting out of hand. Diesel was furious. How the fuck did they know about his life? He had been bullied in school, and yes, he had failed at the police academy application. But who was the bloke to call him on it? He grabbed both Dingo and Bricko at the same time and pulled them toward the exit. Dingo and Bricko followed, as Sheila was yelling abuse at the top of the lungs as she followed him out. Let go of my husband, you fucking darrow. I'm going to sue you fuckers for kicking a pregnant woman out of this place and for no reason and blaming her husband and his mate of stealing. I'm going to fucking current affairs. Diesel continued dragging them out of the club out past the front entrance reception desk and into the car park. Now, Bricko and Dingo have been in altercations such as this before because they were seen as easy targets, but it didn't mean they didn't have a plan for old Diesel one that he would soon regret. Now to keep with the pace of the stories and get back to the supermarket, we should probably skim over this bit and we may revisit it in the future. But long story short, Diesel ended up with a black eye and Sheila ended up with a security guard's jacket. So that's where Diesel remembered them from. The club, the jacket, Ningo and fucking Bricko. He stood and watched as the events unfolded before him. Bricko took the oil and walked down the dog food aisle piercing the top and dropping it as he walked. Diesel followed him down the aisle, wanting to get revenge for the club by knocking him down while he wasn't looking, unaware that Bricko was dropping oil as he was walking. Diesel started to charge at Bricko and slipped on the oil, falling on his ass. and as he fell, he grabbed at the shelf, bringing a large amount of dog food cans onto his arm. Jimbo, at that time, walked around the corner as this was unfolding. Fuck! Jimbo yelled as he saw the security guard. Bricko turned around at the noises as Jimbo ran off and Dingo came around the corner with oil in his hands. Bricko wasn't sure why he had oil, as they had discussed he was doing the oil. What the fuck was Dingo doing with oil? Diesel screamed as his arm broke under the weight of the cans he had pulled from the shelf and Jimbo raced down the soft food drink aisle toward the main entrance and slipped on the oil that Dingo had dropped. Dingo turned and yelled at Jimbo, I'll meet you at the front door. 
You fuckers got me again, Diesel Yoda, Bricko and Dingo. Bricko made his way out of the aisle and walked toward the entrance, glancing up at the drinks aisle as he left. And he saw that Jimbo was laying on the ground with his leg at a crooked angle, staring at him and yelling, Help me, you fucking cunt! What the fuck are you done, you stupid fucks? Dingo grabbed Bricko and yelled, We have to get out of here quickly. They made their way out the front door and started to run home. Job's done, Dingo said to Bricko. Fuck, I'm not quite too sure that that was the plan, Dingo, Bricko stated, trying to work everything through in his mind. He needed some dope. That always helped him with clarity. Listen, he wanted an accident in the shops, so he could sue, and we gave him one. The way I see it, he got what he asked for, and with his busted leg and everything, he'd be able to sue him for more money. Then we can take over his window washing gig, he gets more money. Plan successfully done. Fuck, Bringo thought. It kind of made sense, but there were some loose ends that should have probably be dealt with later. Who the fuck was the security guard? And why did it seem that he knew him? Bricko's mind raced, trying to work through the events and the questions that need to be answering, as Dingo smiled at the success of their scheme, thinking of the great new window washing venture they were about to undertake. Not many thoughts initially came to poor old Jimbo's well-being, but they would, as the next day's events unfolded. So that's where we leave Bricko and Dingo for today after their misadventures in the supermarket. Little thought was given to the consequences of the events that unfolded, and that's another story which we will continue another day. Bogwood is a place of many adventures, and things have a tendency to work itself out. And Diesel had now been done over by these guys twice, but we'll get to that, and with Jimbo taking Sheila, things are about to get interesting. Come back to Bogwood and find the answers to the questions. What will happen to Sheila? How is Jimbo going to seek his revenge for the incidents that unfolded? Will Diesel learn to finally move on from his revenge against Dingo and Bricko? And where the fuck is the security jacket now? All this will be answered in the next episodes. And remember what they say in Boganwood? I'm going to current affairs. There's your dose of Boganwood for the week. Catch the whole thing up on boganwood.tumblr.com. Those Bogans are also on iTunes and on Stitcher Smart Radio. You know, I was just hanging out with our ambassador to the middle, Will Durst, last weekend when our friend Rick Overton, host of the Overview podcast, was heading up a benefit comedy show at the 142 Throckmorton Theater here in downtown Mill Valley. I got to do some improv with Rick and also Robin Williams and some other comedy friends. It was great fun, including Debbie Durst, Will's better half. Now, here's here's our episode's Burst of Durst with Will going on about pink sneakers. Hey, guys. Will Durst here with a few choice words about the giant brouhaha resulting from Texas troopers confiscating tampons from female legislature gallery members during a debate on a bill that would outlaw most abortions in the state. And now, some of the women folk have gone and made a big old fuss over what was really an itty-bitty little thing. Oh my God, from the outcry, you'd have thought the barn burned down and the creek done dried up. Hold on, little ladies. No sense making a mountain out of a molehill. Don't you see all we're trying to do here is look after your best interests? No need to get your petticoats in a bundle. You know what happened. It's funny. You're going to laugh. It was just a big old misunderstanding, is all. We were simply afraid that some of those no-good Yankee rabble-rousers might whip our little princess into some hysterical frenzy that would start her tossing feminine products. And nobody wants that. Darling, our only concern is to keep you from hurting yourself. That's why we let the boys with the guns in. 
See, the whole thing was done with your protection in mind. Now, don't you worry your pretty little head. This situation only marginally concerns you. You just let the menfolk take care of everything so you can head back to the kitchen and bake us up a nice plate of those award-winning chocolate chip cookies of yours. Honey, don't you pay those cummy pinko lesbians no never good mind. P.S. You go right on wearing those pink sneakers if it suits you. All us good old boys think they sure look cute. Fur succotash. I'm Will Durst. Find more Durst at willdurst.com. And you can also read his tweets at Will Durst on Twitter. Episode 65 of Succotash is now a wrap, except for the fabulous guest Succotash recipe. I normally don't talk about the Succotash recipes that happen after Bill Haywatt says goodbye. Uh, they're just sort of little Easter egg that's there, uh, mostly clipped from YouTube, but I'm running out of them. Almost all the Succotash episodes are gone. So I've been asking podcasters if they wouldn't mind start recording episodes and uh, or recording recipes, and I'll put them in. Well, I talked to uh, our friends, uh, Travis and Brandy Clark, down at Tiny Odd Conversations uh, podcast, and asked if they could get their friend, Chef Eddie Vetter, to give us his recipe for Succotash. So be sure to listen to that after Bill Haywatt does his thing. Um, let's see, what else can I tell you? Uh, oh, find them, by the way, at, at uh, our friends Travis and Brandy. Find them at TalkPod, T-O-C-P-O-D dot com. iTunes, they're also on Stitcher Smart Radio. So thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Chef Eddie's recipe, and then you can really get out there and pass the Succotash. You've been listening to Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants. And imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuccotashShow.com, on iTunes, or on Stitcher Smart Radio. You can also like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Succotash Show, email us at marc at succotashshow.com, or call into the Succotash hotline at our toll call number, 818-921-7212. That number again is 818-921-7212. Succotash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, the home of the hit. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the Succotash. Goodbye. Hi, this is Brandy from Tiny Odd Conversations, and here at the TalkPod headquarters, we are huge fans of Mark Hershon and his Succotash show, which is the comedy podcast podcast, and we are going to do a little special treat for him. We have a cooking segment all ready to go, and it is our celebrity guest and TalkPod past guest, Chef Eddie Vetter. Welcome, Chef. Greetings for having me back on to talk about a succotash recipe. Succotash is the original American food. While this Native American recipe has always contained corn and beans, squash is commonly adapted. Would you like to hear a Succotash recipe.
Well, that was beautiful and sung oh so handsomely, Chef Eddie Vedder. Um, I would. I just want to let people know in case they're a little confused is that you do suffer from Vedder syndrome, which is basically you can only sing in, in the keys of your song. Oh, I've had a brain injury, but I can work through it. I'm working and I'm still cooking. Now let's get into the ingredients for succotash. You'll need one tablespoon of vegetable oil, two cups fresh of frozen corn, and a half cup of yellow onion chopped, one large red bell pepper. You're also going to want to chop that one up. One jalapeno with a little small hot pepper. You'll need that one diced. Cup of green or golden summer squash. You're gonna chop it. You're gonna chop it. And two garlic cloves. You're gonna mince those. And one tablespoon of ground cumin seed. It's cumin. Oh, with a liquid you not coming. And next you'll also need a quarter tablespoon of black pepper. Make that a teaspoon, not a tablespoon. That'd be too much. And also a teaspoon of salt. You'll also need two cups of canned lima beans. Drain the frozen lima beans if they're thawed. One half cup of chicken, or if you prefer, vegetable broth. And two tablespoons fresh cilantro. But you'll need to chop it up. That is all the ingredients that you will need. But if you've never heard me cook before, you'll know there's one thing I'd like to recommend. Make sure to wash your bitter hands before you start to cook so you don't pass staph infection. Should I continue brandy with the cooking prep? I'm, gosh, I, I'm watering at the mouth. Yes, thank you. But can you tell just real quick how long all of this stuff takes for the people? Oh, that's exactly what I was about to do. That's what I'm going to do now. Oh, I'm going to do now. Your prep time is about 20 minutes or so. Your cook time is also going to be 20 minutes. Oh, so you can have some all done within 40 minutes that's not bad oh that's not bad let's go over what you'll need to do next place a large saute pan on high heat until it's very hot add one teaspoon of the oil the corn the peppers and the onion then saute until the vegetables start to brown. They will caramelize slightly. That's the look that you are going for. Oh, this should only take about five to seven minutes. Add the remaining oil, squash, cumin, salt, black pepper, and garlic. Cook for another three minutes. On a medium heat, and you're almost freaking done. 
cilantro and lima beans and then simmer oh, and simmer until the vegetables are tender oh, you should only take about an additional five minutes and that's when you're gonna have this delicious circuitash all ready for you to eat Oh, my God. Thank you so much. I'm so hungry, Chef Eddie Vedder. Thank you for stopping by. Is there anything else you want to add? Just wanted to say thanks to Mark Hershon. He hosts the Succotash. It's the comedy podcast podcast. It's called a Succotash. You should rate and review them on iTunes. Just look for Succotash.